0: we are recording, recording in progress with Mr. Richard Rhodes on Wednesday, March 15th, 2023 at 4.02 p.m. Eastern time. And guys, as always, if you want to support the show, click on the little red button. Locals, you can go support it for like a dollar a month for exclusive content and all that good stuff. Mr. Rhodes has been on here several times before. I totally fanboy over all of your books. My favorite of yours is, of course dark sun the making of the hydrogen bomb but today we are getting into something that i believe you are doing research on and that is cosmic rays no no all right
1: (laughs) that's where i am right now absolutely (laughs) i'm kind of trying to walk my way up the history of physics from the 19th century to today and I guess I'm just about at the point where physicists wanted to look at high high energy particles. And the only way they could do that, since they didn't have the giant machines that they built later, was to use the natural high energy rays that were particles that were coming down through the atmosphere. Uh, the first thing they had to do was find out where they were actually coming from. Because they thought they might be coming up out of the ground. They thought they might be the result of something in the atmosphere, but gradually they were able to identify them as coming from somewhere beyond. I think that's pretty well been established at this point, that they're the result of all sorts of the kind of amazingly high energy events that occur in the the universe among stars and, and that kind of debris. But it was kind of fun physics from what I could tell, you know, they'd have to go up to a mountain top, do some mountain climbing. to get to a place where they could really get a nice clean look at the sky and similar, similar adventurous things in order to actually do the, the work The the drawback was they didn't come very often and they didn't come necessarily when you wanted them to. Yeah. So it, was a happy time eventually when they were able to reproduce uh, the same kind of energy levels with machines on Earth rather than waiting for outer space to drop whatever it happened to be dropping that evening. But you know, what I've really been doing lately and what I thought we might talk a little bit about, I've been looking at the 19th century beginnings of physics back when it was still called natural philosophy and particularly the work of Michael Faraday who was an English scientist self-taught he didn't have any math which inspires the hell out of me because I don't have much math Same here. <laughs> he invented the electric motor he invented the uh transformer he really in the laboratory at the laboratory level, not the engineering level, developed the basic principles of a lot of the machinery that runs our world today. This was a working class guy who was an apprentice in a, I've forgotten what it was, a bookstore or something, uh, a printing shop, perhaps, who finally worked his way through to the point of being able to do incredible first class work that was not based on theory, obviously. He had to work on a lab bench or wherever he worked and put the equipment together himself and then study what was happening and make sense of it. Uh, He finally got a job at what was called the Royal Institution in London, which was a kind of a public institution, a little bit like the Royal Society, but not quite so fancy, where people came to hear lectures on a weekly basis. And this was the thing I wanted to bring up first. What happened to the whole business of people going to hear knowledgeable speakers deliver a course of lectures, working class people who would normally not have had any chance at all in England in the 19th century for an uh, an upper level education? You know, Faraday gave these public lectures to working class people all his life because it had meant so much to him. What happened to all that world? I I even remember as a boy that some of that was still around. The only thing that remains that I can think of is the Chautauqua summer events that go on, which you probably recall from this last uh, round was where uh, uh, the, the, the Indian American writer was stabbed, five or six times around the face by some fanatic who had found his way onto the grounds of the Chautauqua, which is in upstate New York in the Lakes region. I I lectured there once, and it's an inspiring experience. There were 2,000 people who attended my lecture. That's how many people go there and live either on the grounds or nearby for a couple of weeks. It's like summer camp and listen to people give interesting talks that's about all this left and i sort of wonder where did that go why don't we do that anymore oh w- is it because online now and on television that people
0: can i would you am- think i would imagine i would imagine that i mean it's you know it's the same reason why i guess i'm able to do this podcast is is i talk to talk to people from all over the world and you know, if I had to get on a plane and go meet someone and sit down and get a hotel, I'd maybe be able to put out like one episode a week versus now, you know, I can talk to people from all over the world multiple times a day. And then it's one that the physical location, right. You know, you don't, you, if you're working at an Amazon fulfillment warehouse in Tennessee, you, you can't come up here and listen to us. And then also if it's a, if it's a, if it's a at an event it's live you you that's another luxury yeah. do you have that free time somebody might listen to this episode while driving a big rig in 2025 so it's right. geographic and temporal it's it's yes you lose the at uh, that immediacy that rich vibrancy of sitting in a lecture i've gone to lectures and listen and it's great but it's it's that's the expense, but the result is that the average person can access yeah. so much more information. So it, it's it's a trade-off, I suppose
1: right. In fact I if I thought twice I would have thought about all this. In a way people have more access yeah to it It's the New Yorker cartoon with the guy holding up his his uh, iPhone and saying, theoretically I know everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, but but really, right? And it's that's an that's an amazing thing. Is and then this is just one podcast. You can stop halfway through, jump to another lecture, go to, and it's. I would say it's yeah, it's more accessible to every. Then just do does the individual want to seek it out on their own? You know, that's you can't force that.
1: And uh, it's monetized with what with advertising. Yeah, and in your case, yeah.
0: So guys, basically
1: subscription
0: uh well no Is it's it- it's uh it's like per thousand views right it's like I think it's called an impression on Spotify or Rumble there'll be an ad for Ikea or something so yeah it's it's, it's really yeah
1: <coughs> yeah
0: I would say that's where well- it went and it's it's also kind of fascinating because not only can the average person listen to it, but now the average person like me can be the lecturer like I can start a show and just start talking.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure you're an average person to tell me. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway. Well, no, in fact, one of the things that I think we probably do miss just because being in the room with someone like Michael Faraday demonstrating an an experiment that he's done, you know, at the I'm not I think it was at the Royal Institution. Yeah, it was. They had, in order to get a power supply for these experiments, they were working with with basically fundamental electricity and magnetism, making a spark between two wires. But if you're going to lecture to a whole room, you had to have a bigger spark, as it were. So they had 2,000 batteries, big old liquid style, I mean, kind of old car batteries, basically similar down in the basement wired in series so they would get this enormous flux of direct current whenever they needed it and blow stuff up and make smoke or <laughs> it, 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 it was kind of magic show science lecture and people really enjoyed them and i think the people who demonstrated in fact one of the one of the basic breakthroughs in physics in, in electromagnetism came when a dutch demonstrator at a public lecture performed an experiment that he never done before and realized that he was demonstrating that if you uh, put two electrified wires close to each other they have a magnetic field flowing between them the basic principle of the transformer really That was actually done to his surprise in the middle of a public lecture he was giving. He didn't know he was going to get this response. So it really, in that sense, there's a certain amount of thrill that's involved in being present when these things happen, of course. But on the other hand, they can be beautifully demonstrated uh, online, as we know, from looking at good documentaries and things like that. You want to see a nuclear weapon explode? You can see it right there, and you don't have to be close by when it happens, yeah. as it were. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it's really interesting to me that that people were were so. I guess one of the things it says to me, and this is the deeper thing I'm picking up as I start studying physics for in in, in its early history for the first time, and that is. Physics is actually, as someone I think Feynman may have said, physics is very simple, but it's very subtle. And you see this when you see people like Faraday putting a coil of wire next to a a magnet and pushing the magnet in and out of the coil of wire and discovering that he could get an electrical current flowing in the wire just by moving a magnet in and out of the coil that's so simple. I mean, you wind up some wire, and you get yourself a bar magnet, and you push the two back and forth. But the principle that he discovered in the process, had enormously profound effects, because he was basically demonstrating uh, electromagnetism. And that's what runs most of our world these days. So in that sense, I'm beginning to realize that this science that has always seemed rather formidable, in some ways is not so formidable. And in other ways, of course, is terribly formidable because trying to understand what's actually going on turns out to be immensely complicated. And because, because it's evidently easier to do a lot of things mathematically rather than physically, rather than with your hands on an object, uh, it's gotten very, very uh, obscure. It's like people who work in the have their own special language that the rest of us have never learned.
0: Yeah. And
1: they, Feynman says in one of his lectures, there's no, you can't understand physics without having a lot of math, which surprises me because Feynman worked very hard to make everything clear, including his famous little diagrams, which are like little, little miniature cloud chambers with little particles flying around. And he drew them out like cartoons. And yet, I see his point. Obviously, there are things that are more clearly presented through mathematical structures than, than speaking a language. But I'm trying to do it without the math. So I'm beginning to beginning to think it's going to be possible.
0: <laughs> Good. It's Well, there are people like me who, like you, absolutely <laughs> despise math, and math despises me. But i still like science so there's like a there's a mutual agreement between me and science that we're going to find a way to understand it not using numbers
1: yeah and of course you can always do analogies Feynman's argument was analogies will only take you so far before you get lost and the question of course then is how far do we need to go to at least have a general sense of what on earth we're talking about here and the answer i think is we probably don't have to go that far. I'm yeah. sure analogies fall apart. They always do. That's why they're just analogies. Yeah, it's the old the old idea that if you I think this comes from Borges, the Argentinian wonderful, wonderful writer. Uh, but he's t- he has a story about someone who makes a map that's the same size as the area being mapped, which, which, when you think about it. Uh, it doesn't really make sense, hmm. you know. If you map that's identical to the real thing, then it's the real thing. It's not the map. <laughs> I think about. I mean, even actually, the one one time. No, that's not quite right. Of course, it, it's it's a piece of paper or cloth rather than the original, but. The whole point of a map is to have something you can move around and use that gives you some kind of sense of orientation in the in the larger landscape you're dealing with. I'm thinking about the way they designed the first hydrogen device, uh, the 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 mic device, which was a two-story uh, tank of of super cooled liquids with with a bomb at the top, basically. Uh, super cold hydrogen and so on to to make it to be clear about what they were doing. The guys at Los Alamos took over an old warehouse in Santa Fe and sealed it off so you couldn't see into it and built a balcony at one end. So their blueprint was (laughs) life-sized. It was two stories high (laughs) because that way they could really see what they were doing and they didn't know what they, were doing. they didn't know how to make this thing. They had to figure it out as they went along. It only took them about 18 months, strangely enough, because they, it wasn't that again, here we are, it wasn't that complicated, but they did want to see it at full scale rather than having to scale things up. I don't know if people know it, but before the computer came along to allow scientists to simulate uh, whatever they're working on. And in physics, it's usually some set of objects or or, uh, uh, mechanism of some kind. The way that you, let's say you wanted to build a, a cyclotron for the first time. You started out by making a little tiny version of it. Louis Alvarez, the Nobel laureate who worked with Ernest Lawrence on the early cyclotrons told me this, he said, we had to make a model, a physical model that actually worked at some scale of whatever thing we were planning to build at a larger size. He said, and you had to adjust everything. Uh, A model would have a different electrical input, let's say. It wouldn't need as much electricity or whatever. It all had to be scaled so that you could see in the model what you were hoping to get in the full-sized object. And that was a very different way to think about what you were doing. My son is an architect, and he tells me that he can look at a lot of buildings and tell you which iteration of a particular software package for architectural design was used to make that building. Because in the earlier stages of the of of the the software there were corners that it couldn't design that had to be worked out by hand and so forth and and as it got smarter and better it began to be a problem in itself because with the software you could design two walls that that intersected each other in a way you didn't want them to intersect each other uh, and you wouldn't really know it. The software, I don't know how this worked, but it would compensate in some way for this, this non-realistic connection between two parts of the building. So he's still to this day, at the beginning of designing something, gets out his paper and some pencils and sketches it by hand and puts in the various parts so that he has a, I mean, he's building a sort of a model there. It's somewhere between a physical model and a piece of software, if you will, when you do a sketch. But he wants to be sure that they're not going to have the kitchen wall running right through the living room, yeah. <laughs> no, which is possible with the existing software today. I think that's the kind of problem that they have in aircraft design. It's so easy with with the the software designing of any object to to violate the principles of the physical principles of the real world, because the machine designed to allow for those things and it, it doesn't know any
0: better. <laughs> but and then there's a uh, who is it? Ben Rich of of Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, the successor to Lawrence or uh, Clarence Johnson, uh, Kelly Johnson, oh. and uh, he talked about when they made the F one seventeen Nighthawk, the hopeless diamond, because it's just like this extremely ugly if you've ever seen the F117 I mean it looks alien but they oh, yeah. they built it first to evade radar and then after they had yeah. the model then they went all right now we got to make it fly and the only way it flies is because it does like thousands of of like calculations a second and i think he said in his book Skunk Works he said they could make the statue of liberty fly if you had enough thrust and enough computers controlling the surfaces and in that sense, it's an advantage because you can now you can do things that the human mind couldn't do, but I would imagine there's also limitations. It might be pushing things, especially if the model isn't perfect. It if you're just the slightest degree off on an input variable, it might design something that in the model works, but if the model isn't a hundred percent identical to physical reality, it's a moot point.
1: Yeah, well, that's, of course, why test pilots get paid so well and have good insurance policies the F117A wouldn't fly except for, I mean, it was totally aerodynamically unstable, given its design, I didn't realize they they designed the stealth part first that makes sense, though. Yeah, I have a story back around, I don't know, back when that plane was was just coming into service we we my wife and i happened to be in paris for some research i was doing on something and heard that the paris air show was on and we thought well we've got a few extra hours let's go see all the great planes my wife was a private pilot so she has a special interest in aircraft and i've always loved planes since i was a boy in world war ii you know we used to fly model planes and shoot each other down and all those good things Playing at war as we all did at that time, Uh, we went out there and heard people talking about the F one seventeen A. It was it was on display, (laughs) but the French were all saying, "Zestel bomber plane is here, but you can't see it." (laughs) Much lower than all the other aircraft, and really quite small compared to. The, the regular kind of fighter bombers that were around. That that you'd walk down this line of planes and you wouldn't see it until you actually came upon the space where it was parked, because it was just moved. It was like a small car, sports car in the middle of a bunch of SUVs it was tucked away. I had a I I talked once to the pilot. He this was at a writer's conference and he was wanting to learn more about how to write. He was a smart guy. I talked to the pilot who flew the F-117A over Baghdad at the beginning of the whichever Iraq war it was that that plane was there. He said I was up at around 20,000 feet playing Bach or something on the sound system. I think the pilot lies down in that plane on his belly. But he said I was surrounded with this glorious music. I couldn't. The plane is so quiet; nobody knew I was there because that aircraft had the radar profile of a fly, literally. Yeah. <laughs> a, a fly, uh, they they basically just thought it was a bug on the on the machine, which rather than a full sized aircraft, but he was launching smart bombs out of his plane into into Baghdad in this environment where. Any notion of being someone who was killing people and blowing up buildings was about as far away as it could be. It must have it was clearly for him a a moving experience almost to be in this kind of divine power up above. It's like God in his heaven throwing down lightning bolts. Very
0: strange experience. That's insane being in a a black, a black budget I, special access program stealth bomber listening to Bach in foreign territory dropping bomb. That is, that's crazier than an acid trip. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and, and, I mean, you know, the, the question always is how easy is it to kill people? Oh, sure. And people, and our bomber pilots over the years have talked about, I mean, when they, when we, firebombed Hamburg in World War II. These planes were flying at about, let's see what kind of area, flying probably 15,000 feet, which is pretty high. That's three miles above ground. But the smoke and the stench of the burning actually reached up to their level and they could smell it and see it, of course, because the whole city was in a big firestorm at that point. It was... It was the people who who had that experience were pretty horrified by it but this guy i said so were you how did you feel about what you were doing i said did you did you think about it later did you struggle with it later and he said i used to sit out by the lake and you know think which i think was a masked statement he didn't want to talk about it but but nevertheless The fact is, if everyone who kills people in a war had to do it with a spear and a sword, like the wonderful Viking series that was on television recently, uh, it's a lot harder to do that. It's a lot harder to kill at that level. One of the things, I, when I was looking into violence to write about it, I came across some studies about mass killings by animals. You know, normally animals kill and accumulate enough prey for their food for their immediate needs and then stop killing I mean it's a dangerous thing to do you could be wounded, you could be injured, it could cause you problems so they don't kill any more than necessary to eat but there are a few incidents that have been collected over the centuries, over the years where uh, a pack of wolves Got into a huge corral full of, of uh, sheep, and knocked off a couple hundred sheep in one night, and the question was why would they do that? Why would they kill so much more than they needed? So, and there were several other similar incidents that people had, had collected information on, and in every case it was because something obscured their vision. Either it was a very dark night with no moon, and they really couldn't see the animals, or it was a fog, thick fog, so that it obscured the number that had been killed. There, It's as if there's a feedback mechanism that, among us predators that stops us from mass killing unless something obscures the, the degree of such. I take this then I over to when I was writing about the uh, so-called bullet holocaust, where SS men and, and uh, German police forces were trained to go into towns and villages and collect together all the Jews and take them out to a tank trench or a previously dug hole and shoot them into the pit and then cover them up and walk away. Those guys started having breakdowns. It was traumatic to be killing at such numbers, you know, three, four, five, six hundred 600 people in a day, just shooting, 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 while they're right there in front of you. So you can see it happen. And it was clear by the time I finished writing this, doing this research and writing this book, which is called Masters of Death, that the reason Himmler, who was in charge of the SS, decided to find some other way to do the killing, the mass killing, is because of the trauma to his his killers. So when they developed the the, the gas chamber, it wasn't because, we talked about this before, it wasn't because it was more efficient. It wasn't more efficient. It was because it reduced the trauma to the perpetrators. So in other words, basically it put the killing out of sight, just as is true with people in bombers and and was true with these mammals that were, these predators that were killing to eat, but then got triggered by not having a feedback loop that told them it was time to stop. I find these things really, really interesting because they're so way down below the level of higher consciousness if you will or human rational thought they're really really elemental in a way and i don't think they've ever really much been explored they intrigue me i wish we could explore them more but there's no way to do experiments along these lines i'm afraid you have to experiments yeah yeah
0: i've i've mentioned i've mentioned that exact thing before from your book, uh, SS Einsatz on SS Einsatz Group and Masters of Death, I've talked about that before. How it's what appears to be one thing is you know the trope of German efficiency and cold calculation was insanely enough. It's it's so twisted, but it's it's a weird form of caring for your fellow man, your fellow Aryan master. You don't want him traumatized. So you're doing this weird thing where you're putting him in trains, right? Only There's only how many people on the train that have to operate it, right? You close the cattle cars. You rush them all off. You put them in the showers, and then you have the Sonder Commando. The, you have Jews go in and pull the bodies out, again, not Germans, put them in the crematorium, right. and then they grind the, grind the bones up, and then they throw the ashes in the lake or the river or whatever. And it was all because you didn't want your fellow German brother to be scarred. It's the most insane. I mean, if that is not the definition of the the road to hell is, is paved with good intentions. I mean, it's yes. it's wild. Absolutely wild.
1: Well, of course, in time of war, <laughs> uh, we all, all do a lot of killing. Our young men, as it were, and so on, and the other side's young men and women these days, and rationalizing that kind of slaughter is has been one of the big jobs, and it's what's involved in all the statues and the flags and all the rest. There's a really extraordinary book that I that I remember reading and and cherish as a guidepost to some of this, by a woman actually an English professor uh, and philosopher named Elaine Scarry. It's called uh, uh, The Body in Pain. And one of the things she looks at is, what exactly is war about? Since wars don't necessarily end when the last man is dead on the other side, since wars don't necessarily end when the, the supplies have run out, what exactly does lead to a victory in war and why, how does that come about on the part of the people who surrender? And she points out, I think most of all, the wars are about, they're kind of like a potlatch ceremony. You throw your best young people into a mass killing situation and you do it in as a way of saying, we believe in our principles and our way of life more than you believe in yours. And the ones who finally come to the conclusion that that they've lost come to that conclusion because of that failure. I, I mean, in a, in a way, maybe we're talking about what's going on in Ukraine right now. Sure, I've never seen a vivid example of one side full of belief in their and hope for themselves and the other side just... Oh, Christ, do I have to go do this? You're going to make me go kill myself running in the front lines because of your government and your life? It's really been interesting to see what happens when one side isn't motivated truly. They end up running all their, their prisoners out of the, out of the prisons of, of the former Soviet Union and throwing them into the lines to get shot down it's quite interesting to see how so Putin is left basically breaking down the electrical supply system in Ukraine and generally just killing people to kill people hoping that it'll break the spirit and that's the point that scary makes it's ultimately about breaking the spirit if you will
0: it's a it's a weird auction of yeah who's willing to how much do you want the you know, me and Mr. Rhodes, we're both eccentric billionaires, and there's a Model T, right? And, and I'll pay $5 million, $6 million, $10 million. And it gets to a point where even like an Elon Musk and a Jeff Bezos are going to start going, i am not. I really about to pay $50 million for Model T? They've got all the money in the world, but there is a certain point where they go, uh, you know, they'll pay a lot. I think Jeff Bezos paid like $100 million of his own money to have one of the Saturn V engine bells pulled up from the bottom of the ocean because he just loves rocketry, but even he probably had an upper ceiling where he was like, "I wouldn't pay that much."
1: <laughs> well, look at what they look at the level of contest now. It's going into orbit. That's the latest level of contest among the the, the uber wealthy guys. Yeah, they they can't have to just yeah. make. That goes back and forth all the time. There's even a chart online that that day by day shows who's the richest today. But they can say, "I'm going to go in orbit and wear a spacesuit and and all that and so forth." It, That's the level, you know.
0: It is. A, <laughs> it's, it's a weird. Like if you observe, if you if you observe all of humanity as like a super organism. And thus we're all one. And Bezos and Musk are these weird appendages full of energy and resources. It is almost this, like we are kind of benefiting from it, right? If if you're just accumulating ones and zeros in the bank, I feel like that maybe has a detrimental effect on society. But if we can align their interests or our interest where it is in the human species interest to get off the planet and then make it a game where, for them, it's ego-stroking. I think that's kind of a a brilliant, I guess, meta-mind use of... Because, I mean, right? You can only build a skyscraper so high or have so many Lamborghinis before it's like we're no longer adding benefit to society. But if the new, excuse my French, if the new pissing contest is make an interplanetary species... I think that's probably good.
1: Yeah, the only thing is, there's so many people who are just barely making it in the world. Of, yeah, of <laughs> course,
0: yeah, of, and then yeah, I mean, most people live in abject poverty and don't have clean drinking. I mean, that's obviously the dark underbelly of it.
1: I'd rather see a much higher tax rate, personally. Um, Although the way watching it these days, I'm not sure about that.
0: <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm speaking purely as just. An objective. objective. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm just looking at it as like, they're not going to listen to me anyway. So to me, I'm like, they're not going to listen to my call for a tax rate or socialized medicine or whatever, or the end of war. So I might as well like cheer for maybe it'll be better in a hundred years. I don't, I I don't know.
1: I'm, I don't know. You know, Paul Newman told me once that the, when the tax rate on, on the upper levels of uh, movie star wealth was 90%. Oh, yeah. He said, We just did many movies. We just made three a year because when you got to the marginal tax rate of 90%, it just wasn't worth the trouble. So, and since one of my theories about Hollywood is the reason they're always having marital problems is because they don't have enough to do, uh, I think that probably spurred any number of problematic marriages and divorces in Hollywood. That's one of my favorite crackpot theories. I'll spare you the other.
0: <laughs> no, I, I no, I like it. I like. I mean, I think I think it's great. I think it's um, uh, yeah. I don't know. I I I've, I've had some theory. I just forgot what it was, so never mind. But <laughs> I had a crackpot theory. Of my know,
1: own. Interesting thing. Talking about them coming around to giving us goods. Eddie Lamar, who, about whom I wrote a book a few years ago, uh, didn't enjoy drunken party, she didn't drink. And rather than, she enjoyed a quiet dinner with some intellectual friends, because she was very smart. And so she set up to uh, a hobby of inventing things. And out of that, as you know from previous conversations, uh, came her invention of what's called frequency hopping, which is basically a way of moving a radio signal around in a in a timed way that's matched to what the receiver's timing is so that the signal can't be jammed and she did that because she was helping to prevent german submarines from torpedoing shiploads of english children as they were doing early in the second world war the children were being shipped off to canada to get them out from under the bombing of the blitz bombing and the Germans were torpedoing these passenger ships with children aboard. She was horrified and decided there must be some way to prevent that. And the way she was thinking about was improving the accuracy of, of submarines and their torpedoes. But the main problem with controlling a torpedo with radio, as she saw it, was that the signal could be jammed between the plane and the torpedo or the ship and the torpedo. So her answer was to think, well, if the signal hopped around all over the frequency, she played the piano very well, and she was experimenting with hopping around on the piano, that the way to would be to make the signal hop around linked to the receiver so that the two would move together from frequency to frequency in a pattern that nobody could quickly analyze in those days and, and reproduce. And that would therefore prevent that signal from being jammed. Torpedo could be guided and it would take care of the problem of German submarines destroying ships. So with the help of a a composer named George Antile, who knew quite a lot about about electronics and some other scientists, they actually put together and patented a frequency hopping system. Many years later, when this thing was finally declassified, they gave it to the Navy, which threw it in the safe that they weren't interested. But many years later, when this was declassified and made available for, for commercial use, it became the basis for Bluetooth and a lot of other systems. First for car radios, because if you only had a 100 frequencies in a given area, you'd only have 100 car radio conversations going at the same time, which would not be commercially viable. But if you could make the signal hop around at a frequency of several times a second, if they interfered with each other, you wouldn't even know it, you wouldn't hear it. It would just be an inaudible blip, and then the conversation would continue, and you could have thousands of conversations. So it was first applied to the old-fashioned car telephone, and then with the appearance of digital, systems it was applied to bluetooth uh, to some cell phone systems not in this country because someone came up with a cheaper system <laughs> the cell phone manufacturers of course preferred that one even though it wasn't as effective as as Hedy's system she came up with something very fundamental that i mean it's kind of like comfort it's kind of like uh faraday and his developing the basic idea of an electric motor so <laughs> So so these things do sometimes come back to give us something good, but that's a rare exception. Usually they build what theater halls and monuments to
0: themselves. I guess that's how I kinda how I how I view things. It's like um you know, it's like whenever there's like a like a big banquet dinner or a casino night and like 50% of all proceeds or something or like a big poker tournament and 50% goes to you know you know children's cancer research and they raise 10 million dollars and five of it goes to there and five goes to the winner and you ask you know like how come all these people didn't just donate the money well right ultimately they they didn't right and they just they didn't and 5 million is better than 0 million. And I know that's kind of a jaded way of looking at it, but you know, human incentive is a very real thing. And although a lot of times the majority of times it just produces ostentatious wealth or kind of meaningless luxury, I still think it has a higher success rate. It's it's very it's like saying versus 5%. I mean, technically 5% is better, but not by much. But I think if we can guide people with this insane desire to create and have wealth, and they, you know, it's all ego. I want my name in the history books. I want to be a Carnegie, a Rockefeller. I mean, would we have a uniform steel system or oil system or railroad system without these guys? And was there wild disparity in wealth? Absolutely. 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 I don't think that those things would have just arisen. It, it you have to harness it. It's a it's a it's a dirty energy that I think you have to harness, and it's imperfect. But I think it's the best we have. If that makes sense. Well,
1: you know, I think I think I think you're. Of course, I think you're right because those basic motivations are pretty much built into our our model of monkey, if you will. (laughs) They're there. They might as well be turned to good use. Uh, You know, I'm the guy who used to, when I was a somewhat pious Methodist high school student who was going to be a minister, uh, our youth group used to get together and vote to spend some of our savings money on a cook machine for the basement of the church. And I'm saying, we should be giving that money to missionaries. And everybody would say, get out of here. I mean, that was, (laughs) what a prig. It didn't harness the human need to to climb up the pole, if you will. (laughs) So, you know, that reminds me of one of the odder facts I picked up when I was working on my book about Ed Wilson, the scientist, E.O. Wilson, Uh, because he had a real breakthrough in, in thinking about evolution when he Went with a colleague of his to a monkey colony off the coast of Puerto Rico on a little island just about 50 yards off the off the beach where there was a colony of, I think they were rhesus monkeys that had been living wild for a long time. Had been moved there in the 20s from India and, and then had been allowed to just develop as it developed. So they were, it was basically a wild colony and they used it for studying. But Ed noticed... ed Ed mentioned to me in the context of that experience of his that when a dominant uh, monkey is deposed from his dominance by a younger and stronger monkey his testicles actually shrink (laughs) he produces less testosterone i mean that's how fundamental this whole process of ranking and and dominance in in those types of animal groups that that function with dominance ranking in social groups that <laughs> Ed also sense. told me don't stare at the don't stare at the rhesus monkeys there that's considered a threat and he made the mistake at one point of looking at a really cute baby monkey that was in some mom's nest and one of the males saw him and stood up and pounded his chest and came jumping over to him. He said, I had thought of rhesus monkeys as small. And you know, they're not that big, but this was a typical young male and he weighed about 200 pounds and he was all muscle. And he was standing in front of Ed, baring his teeth and staring at Ed, just ready to pounce and eat his head off, if you will and ed did what you're supposed to do he dropped his head bowed his head looked down at the ground humbled himself in front of this this young male and the young male stood there for a while and then huffed and walked away like oh you're not worth the trouble <laughs> it was it was it was the beginnings of ed wilson's thinking about sociobiology uh, in terms of how social groups interact and what level that's learned and one level that's uh, in uh, uh, genetic and he figured that the genetic part was had had a pretty strong component and I think got in great trouble for it from some Marxist scientists who wanted to believe that human beings have no genetic behavioral patterns that it's all learned because the whole Marxist world was, is, and has always been about transforming human beings into a different, different beings, as it were, and you can't do that if it's already hardwired into your system. So Ed got into a lot of fighting and trouble back in the 70s, but but his point was, I mean, he really did take to heart that that rather scary experience with this young male.
0: It is. I think that perfectly I think that perfectly described is if it's hardwired into us. Yeah. It's going to be next to if not entirely impossible to simply force it to be something else. like a hydroelectric dam is very zen in that it is you're moving with the thing that's already. It, the, here's this. The Earth is churning up this energy. None. We're not paying for the tectonic plates. That's just going, and that's powered by the sun, which is the moon, and the move with it. Right? Don't try to stop it. Just move with the thing, and that that is the best way. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. But move, move with. I mean, what has brought about the most? quote unquote stable world and the history of man and it's everyone having a nuclear weapon pointed at each other. Insane? Sure. Yeah. But it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of working. I mean, all things considered, it's kind of working. So it's like if it's stupid but it works, then it ain't stupid.
1: I've just been going through the manuscript of a book that will be out, I think, in about a year by a, a wonderful scholar of that question named Ward Wilson, whose book is about how to eliminate nuclear weapons realistically, not because it's morally a better world or anything else, but based on a very simple premise, which is they're lousy weapons. The real reason they haven't been used is because no one's been able to figure out a reasonable use for them. Uh, They're too big. They cause too much too much radioactive fallout. Uh, they just—if you get attacked back, the deterrence argument—you're you're in even worse trouble. Just all the things you can think of for how would you design an absolutely cruddy, useless weapon of war? There's nothing quite like a nuclear weapon. And I realized as I was reading through War's manuscript that and I don't think he knows this. I'm going to have to discuss it with him because it's an important point. The whole work of our national labs in the weapons design business, once they got to the point where they were building warheads designed for a certain size missile and scaling the weapons down to fit the warhead, you know, there's been a general decline in the yield of our nuclear weapons. There was during the Cold War over the whole era of the Cold War. The first ones were huge. They were megaton yield. They were five megatons, which is an ungodly amount of explosive force, five million tons of TNT equivalent, largely because Curtis LeMay, the head of the Strategic Air Command, only had bombers. He didn't have missiles yet, didn't have any other way to deliver the weapons. And since bombers can get shot down, he wanted the maximum yield for the weapon that bomber was going to carry. And that was the way the Air Force pushed. The reason they destroyed Robert Oppenheimer in the security hearing he went through in 1954 was partly because the Air Force didn't like him suggesting we shouldn't build giant weapons, that they really weren't very useful. They He was in favor of small tactical weapons, which it's that's where I'm going with this. So ever since we got to the point where we were designing weapons to match the delivery system, the next game at the labs has always been to try to figure out a way to make these weapons usable by making them low enough yield to actually be able to, let's say, take out a bridge. Or in the case of air-to-air to, air to air rockets, which we had, believe it or not, with nuclear warheads, to just take out a squadron of the enemy's planes in the air or or a torpedo that would just take out a, a, an aircraft carrier but not blow up the entire South Pacific. So in a way, the whole move towards smaller and smaller weapons was in the service of responding to what is indeed Ward's well-taken argument against nuclear weapons, which is they're too big, they're too messy. There's no way you could use them. There's a risk that your own forces will be destroyed by the same explosion that destroys the enemy. They're almost as bad as poison gas, which never really got very far, primarily because it, it it was on the wind. It would blow back across your trenches and kill your people. So in the end, everybody was prepared to sign off on let's not use poison gas. So the the the, the problem I, I've forgotten where we were going
0: with this. Who discussion. cares? Who cares? Keep going.
1: I'm t- here. We are talking about all the ways well, kill people, kill people. Small. Sma- I was. About developments.
0: <laughs> I was going to say I. I would disagree with him, and I would say they're wonderful weapons if our end goal is to have less warfare i would say these things are great they are so sloppy and so i mean there's the thermal pulse there's the shock wave there's the there's the radioactivity there's the emp i mean you kill your own people the land is uninhabitable they are so insane that they can't be used to me they are wonderful weapons because they are so we're talking about, you know, chimps and our genetic hardwired. I mean, these guys are willing to throw billions just to have their name on the rocket. You know, think of Alexander the Great or Hitler or Napoleon or you know, all the empires and the millions of people that dictators will just without blinking say, yeah, kill them all because they want power. We are dealing with the most insatiable, primitive reptilian mind. The only language that mind answers to is violence and like the chimp standing up and staring you in the eye that's what a 10 megaton mushroom cloud is is that's the only way you get a hitler or a or a g or or a biden or whoever a trump the only thing that gets those egos to sit back down is looking at the the power of god and to me i i think they're great for that reason we're dealing with hardwired genetics
1: the problem is that since we're doing this at the level of actual weapons in actual silos and on actual planes and in actual submarines we take great risk well that's the because if inevitably they something fails as all mechanical systems do we risk being destroyed for no reason because the system just broke down. And I mean the system does break down, God knows, and has came very close many times during the Cold War years. I mean there was a bomb that was dropped over South Carolina.
0: Yeah, Greensboro.
1: Out of, right. That that evidently all the safety interlocks but one actually was triggered. So and so forth. So My argument is the same one that Oppenheimer and the crew put together in the Atchison Lilienthal plan in 1946, which is if you have a world where you know where all the weapons or materials are, where you have perfect transparency about the possibility of anybody secretly testing and so forth, then you can back off from using weapons, from keeping weapons on hair trigger alert. You can move them back to it takes two hours to launch. You can move them back to where it takes two days to launch, basically just by taking them apart and moving the parts to different places, which by the way is the way India maintains its nuclear arsenal to this day because they don't want anyone to be able to steal one or don't want any uh, faction to be able to, take control of them. They keep them physically separated in different vaults around the country. So that you have to go through quite an elaborate process to put them back together and get them ready to launch. So it is possible. And if you could do that, if you do that, and if you can make sure everyone is doing that, then you march back progressively from the kind of mistake that is fatal because it happens and then it's all over. You can even get to the point where you you have deterrence at the level of knowledge because no one's going to stop knowing how to make these things everyone who has any advanced nuclear technology in their country has already done that exercise you may be sure and i mean japan and any other country the swedes were working on nuclear weapons for god's sake back in the back in the 50s and got pretty far along before they realized that there was no point in it once the Soviets got hydrogen bombs because just two hydrogen bombs would take their country out. So there was no point in having some little nukes that would take out a a, a line of march of Soviet tanks if they were ever attacked. Anyway, you can get to the point that the etchison Lilienthal plan argues where you have deterrence at the level of knowledge and, if you will, mothball parts or something at that level then if somebody starts cheating and this is where bernard baruch who was going to present the plan to the united nations screwed it up he asked oppenheimer well what happens if someone cheats where's your army and oppenheimer said well if someone started trying to rebuild a nuclear arsenal in a world like the one we've described that would be an act of war And you could therefore immediately begin whatever you wanted to begin. You could begin with negotiation and diplomacy. Uh, If that didn't work, you could move to conventional forces. If that didn't work, then you could also, assuming the knowledge of how to build these things was spread around, you could also begin to build a new nuclear arsenal of your own. At the end of this uh, weapons uh, uh, chain, as it were, you wouldn't be any worse off than where we are now. So it's not as if it would be some kind of uh, surrender to some secret enemy working in a cave. I conclude, you know, I've really concluded that the reason we still have all these nukes, speaking now just for the United States at least, is because of domestic politics because it allows the Republicans to argue in Congress that Democrats are weak on defense because they want to negotiate rather than build more bombs. And the pattern is very clear. You know, when when Obama wanted to get through another treaty, actually Clinton wanted to get through another treaty with with Russia, Uh, the price was the so-called modernization of our nuclear arsenal which basically meant rebuilding everything with keener and more sophisticated weapons. And the same thing goes on now. At the same time, there's a whole military, industrial, scientific complex that lives off of all the money that's spent on these so-called useless weapons, these things that we say we can't figure out how to use. The defense industry has cleverly located aspects of its manufacturing and other facilities in almost every congressional district in the country. They spread it out so that every congressman has a personal stake in maintaining this unbelievably bloated defense budget that we have. They're going to increase the defense budget this year as part of of President Biden's uh, balance the budget plan. It's just incredible. We have a bigger army, not army, we have a bigger defense system, very modern, very sophisticated than the next nine countries combined. And yet we hear about how vulnerable and dangerous the world is. It's a very strange business and it has a lot more to do with politics and money than it has to do with deterrence and the, the avoidance of war.
0: Um, There's an author, Andrew uh... Coburn and um yeah I can't remember the name of it I don't think it, he has one book called Kill Chain but I don't think that's it, it there's another one and um he he actually puts forward a, a very good argument that you know it doesn't it's not that it's sentient but the military-industrial complex pretty much obeys all of the biological laws of a of a virus and a host and the way it attributes, like you said, different districts and the way it puts its veins into resources and it sucks out a disproportionate amount without giving anything back. And when it feels threatened, it lashes out. He he lays out a pretty good argument. And it doesn't mean that it's some Skynet that's taken over, but rather it has, a, a natural system has arisen that this thing is, there almost is no head. It's this autonomous law of just resource acquisition and it's, it's the biggest, baddest thing on campus and it's, it'll bomb you into oblivion and it's essentially become not self-aware, but self-sustaining and it it doesn't need a a head anymore. It's just, it's just growing.
1: And it's, it's all the classic definitions of a parasite. Yeah. It is a parasitic system and parasitic, you know, one of the things that I'm picking up, and I think, again, this is Feynman making this this analogy, but he said, it's as if there are two realities in the world. There's the one we all live in, which is open and clear and sunlight and so forth. And it's basically understandable in a straightforward way by all of us to to a greater or lesser degree. Under that, there's another level of reality that's almost entirely inaccessible to our normal sensibilities. And that's the one that physicists work with, basically chemists to a degree, uh, where where the underlying processes go on. I think that leaves out maybe an, an inner layer where the biological structures and things move on. So many things that we think of in a different context turn out to follow the basic system of Darwinian evolution. And that, that, I mean, there was a physicist, sorry, there was a scientist a few years ago, I don't know if he's still living, who worked out a model for how, how memory works that was basically Darwinian. That is to say, you remember things if you use them. And if they're not useful to you, they tend to recede slowly into into nowhere, which, if you think about it, is basically the pattern where where use and and value and improved value determines which of various genetic mistakes, basically. Uh, Failures of copying of DNA, uh, as as, uh, Francis Crick described it, leads to various possible changes in what will what will be uh, reproduced. And then Darwinian evolution takes place to find out whether that mistaken transcription, which produced, let's say, a slightly better sense of smell or it maybe a slightly worse sense of smell, will decide whether that line will continue to be reproduced down through the years. I hope that wasn't too obscure. That's the way evolution works. Two part thing, one, copying mistakes, just as we all make when we're trying to transcribe something. This happens to be DNA. It's very much like spelling mistakes and so forth. (laughs) And then, then the pressure of the environment, selecting as it were, selecting because it's not a conscious process. As you say, there's no head. It's just what works and what doesn't work and what allows someone to differentially reproduce more. Uh, I mean, you can even see where that monkey rank order comes from. The stronger, the wiser, the smarter, the more clever monkey uh, has more offspring because he's able to breed with more females. And the females choose the ones that maybe look like they're more nurturing or and so forth, and both sides working together end up theoretically with a better monkey at the other end of the process. And then environment changes, and then those those adaptations turn out not to be so useful in the new environment. You know, I'm a pine tree, and my God, it's hundred <clears throat> it's a hundred degrees outside today. I'm going to have to die. That's what's happening around here in Seattle. The trees are getting affected by by the hot summer weather as everything moves north so i'm wandering about but i'm trying to make my point of course systems evolve by themselves that's how we got here unless you believe you were divinely created by a a a master god somewhere on a cloud Uh, we got here by accident i'm intrigued as i look at physics with the there's a, a brilliant brilliant young woman physicist who came from Romania to the United States a few years ago, uh, who is working on the interesting question, well, is it really true that there was nothing before the Big Bang? How could that be so? Uh, I've just started reading her book, so I can't tell you what her answer is, but but it's it's an interesting question. <laughs> Everybody just kind of shrugged it off. Well, of course not, except Jesuit priests who used to tell me Yes, but what came before the Big Bang, Mr. Rhodes? <laughs> Don't you see there was a, a prime mover? Wasn't that probably God? So they have their argument. but However, my favorite description of how we all began, how the universe began, is in the work of another physicist who argues that what we think of as empty space in physical terms is full of quantum particles bouncing in and out of existence. And at some point, one of them got stuck on this side of that wall, if you will. And that was the original singularity that began the universe. So we we were created as it were out of nothing which I just find totally charming. It's just the greatest idea I've ever heard. (laughs) Just because there's a constant probability of certain things happening even in empty so-called space, there's a very low probability that once in a very great while, something that would normally have winked back out of existence in a fraction of a trillionth of a second got stuck. And that would be the beginning of all of us and all of everything. <laughs> Isn't that nice? It is. I like that a lot. Bearded guy on a cloud myself.
0: <laughs> I like the well the I like it because it implies if it can happen once, it can happen again. And oh thus, yeah. And thus yeah. Which, even though the probability
1: is low. We've got all of eternity, so well, to speak. That's the and thing. There's,
0: the probability can be zero, point zero, 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 0.000000. Multiply it by infinity, the probability then rises to 100%.
1: Yeah, right. That's an argument against keeping a bunch of nuclear weapons around, by the way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a fair point, is eventually we will mess up. We are walking a tightrope. Uh, well, um, well, We've
1: certainly... <laughs> round and round.
0: These are the best ones, though. It's oh. the genetic mutations where there is no direct evolution. We're just copying and printing words and sentences. These are my favorite podcasts Are the ones that just go off and they, yeah. don't, they don't need to make sense. These are my favorite.
1: Finish that story about Ed Wilson when he finally came to, he finally argued that maybe 10% of our social behavior and he doesn't mean specific behavior, but rather predisposition to be able to learn things. For example, maybe ten percent is genetic, and the other ninety percent is learned. I've then looked online for for scientific research into into how much, and there it turns out there had there was a meta study done some years ago that pulled together every study for the last 50 years of identical twins. And it looked at something like 110,000 pairs of identical twins around the world that where records had been kept. And it concluded that about 45 to 50% of behavior is indeed genetic. I mean, I think Ed was, was kind of trying to get up from under all these attacks he was having from from the Marxist the scientists who didn't want him to have even 1% when he said, well, maybe 10, because if you allow 10, then you can allow more. It's the, how much would you, how much would I have to pay you for you to sleep with me tonight? Would you take a million dollars? Oh, no, sir. Yes, sir, I would take a million dollars. Well then, would you take $10? No, what do you take me for? We've already established what you are. Now it's
0: a <laughs> I had never heard that before. <laughs> I've, I've heard the, uh, I've heard, would you sleep with me for a million dollars? Yes. Would you sleep with me for 999,999? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I <laughs> All right. What about
1: 999,998? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Two different Sort
0: of Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. Well, Mr. Rhodes, <laughs> we've we've been going for an hour and twenty minutes. Actually, I say we uh, I say we wrap this one up. I don't even know what to call it. I was gonna say cosmic rays, but I think we talked about that for all three minutes. So I don't know. It's gonna be whatever. Whoever well, wants to discover it can discover it.
1: It all comes back around to just. This unbelievably endlessly rich world, and how much there is to always to discover, yeah. how much more there, how much more hope there is, I think, for the world. I really do. I don't mean to end up with a sermon sermonette, but uh, the bitterness and hopelessness that so many people seem to be expressing these days is so sad. All you have to do is just—I mean—you could spend the next. 50 years in your backyard and never exhaust all the riches and treasures that are tucked away out there. You know, Ed Wilson discovered the first appearance in the United States of the fire ant in, in a vacant lot next door to his family house in, in Tennessee. As a 13 year old boy, he was just doing an inventory of the little, the few ants that had made colonies in this backyard. And here was one he'd never seen before, and it bit him. (laughs) And he realized there was a whole new species that no one had recorded yet. So, with that little Aesop's parable, I'm prepared to stop for today. (laughs)
0: No, no, but I think it's I don't I don't think it's sermon. I think it's very real. It's it's, is is whenever you know I get down or depressed or pessimistic. I'll, I'll just really sit down and I meditate every day. But if I have to, I'll do it. A, I'll do it a second time and just really, really l- try to look at everything around me for the first time. And it does eventually. It starts this hopefulness starts to flow, and you realize just how magical existence is. So it's it's. I don't think it is sermon. I think it's 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 very it's very real. Is it is yeah it is a world of endless opportunity. You just have to start looking for it.
1: And I'm 85, so I'm really uh, I still have that going. I hope it stays till the last hour and beyond that.
0: I think it will. I'm 32 and I couldn't imagine ever getting tired of this. It's 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 magical. Yeah. It goes forever. Yeah. Um but Mr. Rhodes, let's wrap this one up. I'll shoot you a text. We'll schedule the next one. And guys, uh, go go look in the archives of the podcast. We've gone over tons of your books. Scientist, uh, uh, bu- 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 SS Einsatz Group, and Masters of Death. Um, energy is great. We've gone through more than I can count, and um, it'll be in the description. 100%. And uh, yeah, Dark Sun, my favorite. And uh, yeah. yeah. I'm kinda of having a brain fart after this conversation. So uh we'll wrap this up. I'll shoot you a text. We'll schedule the next one. As always, man, I love talking to you. You're a cool dude. And uh thank you so thank much you. for your time.
1: Thank you.
0: thank you. Thank you, sir. Take care, everybody. Thanks for watching. God Recording bless you. Stay safe. Peace.